Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, you've got a major new book coming out in the fall on World War II, and it just happens to be landing in an environment where pop culture is pushing World War II back to the fore with this new Christopher Nolan film, Dunkirk. You've seen the movie, so before we get to the actual historical Dunkirk, let's take a, a swing at the cinematic one. As a military historian, you probably watch a film like this differently than your average viewer. What did you think? Well, it, it's uh, it's excellent on the in terms of the face of battle. That's a phrase that John Keegan appropriated. That it really shows you what it's like to be in a supermarine Spitfire fighting a BF one hundred nine over the, the skies of Dunkirk, on the beaches and in the water, or trying to be in a flotilla dealing with uh, Heinkel bombers or U-boats or the litter and the wreckage that's on the beach. But it's almost like a horror movie, and it reminds me of his Batman series in the sense that uh, you don't really see the Germans. So bullets come through a ship or bombs are blown up, but you never really see the people who are doing it, much less why they're doing it. So it becomes almost sort of like the Amityville horror movie. It's just weird, but you don't really know why it's happening or who it's, who's doing it, and that adds supposedly to the sense of dread and horror and irony and paradox and tragedy that's battle. So you see it's really grimy, it's really dirty, it's really messy. People are dying, and that's what battle's like. But had he invested just 10 minutes he could have done the following. He could have had von Rundstedt uh, and von Bock or Lot Lieb or somebody, the senior commanders, uh, three miles away debating why they didn't close that circle and annihilate them and their frustrations. Or they could have had Hermann Goring boasting to Hitler and the Chancellery that I can use the Luftwaffe and bomb this pocket and send a message about the Blitz to come so we can intimidate uh, Britain or... Winston Churchill in office for only two weeks could have said, this is what happens with Baldwin and Chamberlain's wages of appeasement. This is what we're going to do if we get these guys out, 350,000 of them. There's another 200,000 that could get to the Atlantic ports and do the same thing within a week. Or we could have had Churchill waging, uh, playing a wager that I don't want to pull the RAF and the Royal Navy and the British Expeditionary Force out of France and then collapse the resistance, but I don't want to leave him there too long and then lose all of our deterrent capability when he turns his attention to us. And it turned out that he sort of split the difference by the end of May, from May 10th to May 23rd, 24th, 25th. He gave the French two weeks and they were collapsing. All that said, I think we should remember, though, that they killed about 25,000 German troops and wounded, missing casualties were 150,000, shot down about 1,500 planes. And in combination with the Blitz, they so weakened the Luftwaffe and some of the offensive capability of the Wehrmacht that when they went into Russia almost a year later, they were not capable of, of they would have had about 2,000 more planes. They would have been a lot more effective. So 
France and to a greater extent Britain through things like Dunkirk really hurt the Wehrmacht, at least its ability to wage a global war in June of 41. So to your point, I mean, one of the things that is striking about this film is that it doesn't really give you any wider context for Dunkirk. And one of the ways it does that is it just sort of drops you in the middle of the action. So if we were to rewind the tape a little bit, just describe for us how you get to Dunkirk, what unfolds before. What unfolds before is that when Hitler went into Poland on September 1st and 2nd of 1939, he called the bluff of the French and British, and, he, and they said, you know what, no more Saarland, no more Rhineland, no more Anschluss, no more Sudetenland. We don't believe you anymore. We declared war on you. And then the next thing was, would the magnificent French army of three million people invade Germany while Germany had three million people in Poland? And the British urged them to do that, and they sent an initial wave of 100,000. And then it was quickly clear by October that the Soviet Union had joined in late September and that Britain and France were now fighting not just Hitler and Mussolini, but the so de facto the Soviet Union was supplying them with key oil, grain, materials. And so they said, oh, wow. And then they turned to the United States. The United States says, no, we're not going to get involved. And what proceeded was a phony war, Sitzkrieg. So from October of 1939 to May of 1940, nothing happened. French went into the Saarland. They were very successful for a week, and they pulled back. So they sat there and said, you know what? We're going to have our indomitable will and defense with the Maginot Line, and we're going to stop them like we did in World War I. The problem was the Maginot Line stopped at the Ardennes border, Belgian border, and they thought Belg the Belgians are unreliable, but they have this 3,500-foot forest, and you can't put tracked vehicles for it. So we're going to mass the British on the Belgian border to stop to protect it in case they come from Holland, but they'll never come from the Ardennes like they did in World War I because now it's a blitzkrieg. And, of course, that's exactly what they did. They came straight through the Ardennes forest, and they cut the British Expeditionary Force off from most of the French, and that caused a panic. The irony was that in terms of armor, artillery, combined British and French planes, and manpower, the British and the French had a much greater uh, resources than did the Germans. But they didn't have the will to fight, and they were demoralized. So the British very quickly thought, you know, if we stay here, we're going to lose everything. So they retreated to the ports. It wasn't just Dunkirk at Calais. They went to uh, St. Nazarene. They went to Cherbourg, and they were lifted off later. But it was a tough decision because by leaving the continent, they lost all chance for a renewed offensive or counteroffensive, and they doomed France to its fate. And then France fought basically alone for another 20 days and lost another 100,000 people and was very bitter about it. To a, a lay observer, Victor, it seems remarkable, as you said earlier, that the German military, which has just brought all this military might to bear, swallowing up swaths of Europe, steamrolling across France, that, that they relent and don't deliver a killing blow to the British here. Do, do we understand as a historical matter why that happened? Well, the supreme command 
argued to Hitler that the Panzers were tired. They'd lost a lot of planes, tanks. They'd encounter superior French armor, believe it or not. The Char Big tank, B tank was superior to the German Mark I and II. They'd encounter Spitfires that were superior, or at least as good as BF-109s. And they needed three to four days to sit there, regroup, and refit, and get resupplied from Germany. And they thought, they can't go anywhere because we have U-boats out in the channel and we have air superiority, and they're cut off. That's one explanation. The second explanation was Hermann Goering felt left out that it had primarily been a land victory, and he wanted uh, the Luftwaffe to take credit, and he knew that there was going to be a blitz against Britain very soon. That In order to invade Britain, you needed air and naval superiority. So he went to Hitler and he said, let me finish them off. They're trapped. I will bomb them and they can't go anywhere and it will send a message to the British to concede so that they won't face the same fate. The third explanation is that Hitler said, and there's some support, not much, well, let me negotiate. And by being magnanimous, the British will appreciate this, that I let them get away. And so I'll let the fleet come in and, and we'll try to, harm it and harass it, but it will lift the people off. That'll drive a wedge between Britain and France. And then I'll get on Radio Berlin every night and say there needs be no attack on Britain. You can keep your empire. I keep the continent. We're both saviors of Western Civ. And there's less support for the latter argument because Hitler, of course, is not to be believed on anything he says. And he was bombing... Uh, Britain pretty heavily within 90 days. But those are the three alternative. And most people think that the Panzers were tired and Goering, uh, as he often did, misled Hitler into thinking the Luftwaffe could destroy the pocket. You wrote a piece about the movie recently for Defining Ideas in which you note that the, the British role in World War II is underappreciated. Give us a sense of what gets overlooked. Well, the way I look at it is there's a number of first that nobody appreciates. Britain was among the first countries to go to war with Poland and France and Belgium and Holland against Germany. But unlike everybody else, it was the only major belligerent on either side to start the war on September 2nd of 1939 and to be there on the Missouri on September 2nd of 1945. So it was the only country, not Russia, not the United States, not Germany, not Italy, not Japan, not France. Britain alone fought for six years. Second, it was the only country that went to war either by not attacking another country or not being invaded by another country or not having war declared on it. In other words, it went to war for the principle of an ally, Poland. It didn't have to do that and uh, of the major six powers. France did the same, but France was knocked out. Then third, Britain was the only power to single-handedly fight the Third Reich, and it did so from the fall of France in June 20th, 23rd of 1940 to the invasion of the Soviet Union in June 22nd of 1941. So almost to the day, for 364 days, Britain and Britain alone was fighting not just Germany, but 
Italy and Germany and all of occupied Europe. And we got to remember that essentially by July of 1940 and by April of 41 with the Balkan campaign, Germany ex- consisted of the Arctic Circle from Norway to the Sahara Desert with the Italians and the Axis did, and from the English Channel all the way to the Soviet border. It's it's much larger than today's European Union. And against all of that, there was just Britain for an entire year. So it is true that Soviet blood and American treasure won World War II, but even in that count, we, we forget that Britain, for example, all during the Blitz created more Spitfires than the Germans did BF-109s. And if you look at aggregate military production, in every category against airframes, number of tanks, believe it or not, or artillery pieces, um, transport planes, Britain produced by itself more war material than Germany did. And that's completely forgotten because the British economy, actually, if you look at the population base, mobilized for war almost as efficiently as we did. And we forget that. And the British are very sensitive to that, and they have a reason to be, that we don't give them enough. And uh, when I say Britain, I should be fair and say uh, they were drawing on the resources of the empire, but in speci- specifically that of Australia and Canada. Canada produced more wheeled vehicles than Germany did alone in World War II. So let me close this out today by asking you a question that probably dovetails with some of what you were just saying there. About 15 years ago, you wrote a book called Carnage and Culture that was examining why the culture of free societies is an important part of understanding their victories in, in war. When we look at World War II, where do we see the most acute examples of that? Well, we the irony was that the side that had democratic governments and constitutional republics was much more cohesive. You would think that because Japan and Italy and Germany shared a pathological view of human nature and they were fascist, they would work closely together. But by the nature of fascism, they were mutually suspicious. So they shared no weapons. They shared no strategic uh, uh, sharing of information. Their campaigns were not staged to help one another. They were suspicious of each other. We had one power like that, the Soviet Union, but we had two out of the three that were transparent societies. So what that meant was we supplied 20% of the munitions and wherewithal to the Soviet Union. And even though we had a monarchy and empire and parliamentary system, a radical democracy, and radical communism, because two of the three were transparent, they acted and changed the entire alliance. So when we had Sherman tanks that butted up against Tiger tanks, we asked the British. The British created a 17-pound gun that could take out a turret tank and plopped it into a turret of a Sherman. When we created the Mustang, the P-51, and it was underpowered, the British said, let's put a Merlin engine in it, and lo and behold, it became the best fighter of the war. Sonar, radar came from the British. We went to the British and said, what do you need? You need food, you need uniforms, you need radios, you need trucks, you need tanks, and we supplied that. But all of that was a reflection that Roosevelt and Churchill were products of of consensual government, and they had advisors that were not uh, 
unelected in the sense that they were representations of a parliamentary or democratic system. And they were very open and they were honest. And for all the propaganda, Stalin knew that he could trust Roosevelt and he could trust Churchill. And that was enough. We knew that we couldn't trust Stalin, but we didn't need to because he performed a, a role. And we sort of outsourced everybody in the alliance to different tasks. Whereas in the Axis, being all thugs who had come to power by violence, and that's what Tojo and Mussolini, Tojo in some ways, but Mussolini and Hitler in particular, they were very distrustful, not just of us, but of each other. And they did things that were just nonsensical. And so I think it is a referendum and a, a warning and a lesson that for all the clumsiness and the naivete and the appeasement and the isolationism, of democracies and democratic peoples that when they finally go to war, as the historian Thucydides said, they prove to be more flexible and and resolved than autocracies, oligarchies, and statism. All right. Thanks for listening to the Classicist Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, you can stop by Defining Ideas at hoover.org to read more of Victor's commentary. For Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.